We're back with another edition of the Federalist Radio Hour. I'm Emily Jashensky, culture editor here at The Federalist. As always, you can email the show at radio at thefederalist.com. Follow us on Twitter at FDRLST. Make sure to subscribe wherever you download your podcasts as well. Today, we are joined by Arthur Brooks. Of course, he writes for The Atlantic and he teaches at Harvard and he's out with a new book, From Strength to Strength, Finding Success, Happiness, and Deep Purpose in the Second Half of Life. Arthur, thank you so much for joining us. Hi, Emily. It's great to be with you and, and all the listeners to the great Federalist Radio Hour. So it, this is such an interesting book because it kind of started out of a personal quest, I guess, right? You were sort of thinking through something on a personal level that evolved or was the germ um, for this this book. Am I right? Yeah, that's right. And it, for your listeners who are not kind of aware of my own background, before I actually taught at Harvard, I was the president of a think tank in D.C. called the American Enterprise Institute, where you actually served as an intern right. earlier in your career, a long time ago in your career. I and transcribed that's a, a couple of your speeches, by the way. I, Did I you spent really? Like, a couple, like 2013, uh, a couple of your speeches. I spent a couple of weeks, just every word of them. <laughs> I'll be darned. I'm sorry about that. You know, <laughs> Apology accepted. Uh, yeah. And yeah, I was the president of AEI for 10 years. And, and AEI is a think tank dedicated to the proposition that everybody has radically equal dignity. There's greatness inside each person that that everybody should be the 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 CEO of the startup of their life. You know, that we descend from ambitious riffraff and through hard work and personal responsibility and with the aid of good policies and free markets and free minds that we can do unbelievable things. But at the basis of that is human happiness. You know, the, the, the American spirit of the individualist, but also in community, that, that spirit comes from the idea that self-improvement is possible. You know, you go any, almost any place else in the world, people don't believe in self-improvement. They don't believe in self-development. It's, you know, kind of depends on your circumstances. The, and, and a lot of people are harnessed to their communities in ways that we just don't feel that in the United States. You know, what really alarms me and what has for a long time about the grievance and victimhood culture on both the right and the left in America is that it, it does violence to that idea that, that we are and we can be in charge of our own destiny. But that, that, that relies on happiness. When I stepped down as president of AEI, I decided I was going to dedicate myself completely to the ideas of love and happiness and bring love and happiness to more people because I want America to be truly great from the ground up, from the individual up. I want people to understand that, they, that they're, they're in the pilot seat of their own lives. And that's the essence of earning your success, of serving others and being happy. And I was thinking some years ago, what what actually will will predict if people are going to be happy in their own lives it, it, now i'm a social scientist you know I, I suffered through a phd in behavioral social <laughs> science and so and happiness is my main area of specialization so this is not a new thing that i've come to and one of the things that i've noticed over the study is that that there's not very much written about happiness in the last half or even the last quarter of life most of the happiness stuff out there is to you know help people to be happier when they're early in their lives when they're working when they're setting up their lives etc but you just sort of figure that if people do well that everything will turn out okay that you know you know, work hard, play by the rules, raise your family, be successful, and then you'll be like super happy at the end of your life unless you get unlucky. And I started asking myself, is that true? You know, is there something that you can do, Emily, at 30, at 50, even at 70, such that as you get older, you can actually get happier, remarkably change the odds of that. And I also noticed that it's not true that the more successful you are in, in business and in life, that the more likely you are to be happy. On the contrary, you find a lot of strivers have this kind of curse 
these strivers, you know, who work super hard and do really well earlier in their lives, they're very disappointed when the party finishes. But, you know, we need to write something about this. I need to actually do the bench science that finds the people who are truly happy, what they have in common and what we can learn from them and then adopt those practices to people in, in, over the rest of their lives. So I found a lot of cases of people that you'd think would be super happy and that were disappointed in their lives at the end, like Charles Darwin. I also had experiences with people. And I say this at the beginning of the book, I was sitting on a plane and I heard a conversation of a couple behind me, an elderly couple, I could tell by their voices. And the husband was confessing to his wife that he might as well be dead, that nobody loved him. Nobody cared about him anymore. I assumed that he was a guy disappointed because he never did anything. And then when the lights went on in the plane, it was at night and we turned around and I looked at him. It was one of the most famous men in the world. who's going to do 10 times more than I've ever done in my life. I'm like, I would dine out on that for the rest of my life, but -uh, that's no guarantee. We actually need good practices. We need good hygiene. We need, we need the secrets. And that's what I look for in this book. And that's what I think I found. So obviously this is something you've wrestled with a lot. Um, it's, it's difficult to measure what true happiness is because you have to sort of come to a consensus definition of happiness in and of itself. And because right. that's such a foundational question that you've dealt with for years, of course, and in this book again, um, what is your best explanation for how the, what's the, what the most efficient and effective way to measure happiness is? So people measure happiness with self-evaluations and we've been doing that for a really long time. And if you ask a large group of people with a good survey and you ask them anonymously, I mean, you can't ask how happy are you in front of your spouse because <laughs> <Yes. laughs> you'll get lies. But they, they, you know, if you ask people anonymously, they'll, they'll give you a good evaluation of it. Then you can get more granular. I make my students, I teach a big class at the Harvard Business School on happiness. And I make my students take 16 self-evaluations that break it down into more and more and more granular categories of it. <clears throat> but that's pretty, that's pretty accurate what people will tell you at any particular time. Now, what is happiness is another thing. And the best way to explain happiness is it's not a feeling. Happiness is a composite of, of really three different parts of life. Uh, and I, I say this because now what I'm saying is, what's the definition that will influence how people answer those self-surveys? The happiest people have three things in balance and abundance. They have enjoyment, they have satisfaction, and they have purpose. If you don't have all these three things, you're not going to feel really happy. You're going to feel incomplete. You're going to feel kind of empty. Now, each one of those things is really super complicated because how do you get enjoyment? How do you maintain satisfaction? How do you find purpose in your life? And that's actually the basis of the classes that I teach in the books that I write is how to actually how to achieve along those three dimensions. And a lot of what you talk about is is kind of hyper modern and that like even looking at life as you know you can be the the ceo of your own startup in your own life uh, right. this is a sort of hyper modern language language and i'm curious as to what your senses uh your senses as how do how have technologies and sort of the effects that they've had in shifts in our just our day-to-day -day lives how are they influencing this this question because if if you talk about for instance your career is is peak um, you know, sooner than you think. That's right. sort of a question that people haven't in the scope of human history had to think about <laughs> in mass. Yeah. Um, and mm. so I'm curious as how you would respond to that. Modern life has changed the circumstances, but not as much as we think. The fundamentals are the fundamentals. Enjoyment is enjoyment. Satisfaction is satisfaction. Purpose is something that's as old as the hills. And a lot of the technology, sure, the, the trajectory have, of careers has changed, sped something up and slowed other things down. But technology has really not 
changed. Um, it's, if, if anything, technology has changed happiness for the worse. So, for example, we can be more connected to other people, meaning in, in no small part comes from the relationships that we have in our life. And so you think that modern technology, Zoom technology, you and I are talking over Zoom. I mean, people will be listening to it over audio, but we're looking at each other right now. That's great, but it actually doesn't create the, the circumstances for more meaning and purpose. And part of the reason for that is because the the, the true connection that comes from people neuro uh, neurologically comes from a, a peptide that functions as a hormone called oxytocin. They only get in real life, you know, person to person, real life eye contact and touch. And that's what you don't get over Zoom, for example. Social media is a disaster for oxytocin because social media, you're not even dealing with people in real time. And so people are, are craving this neuropeptide. Their brains are almost physically hurting because they're not getting it. They look for it with social media. It's sort of the junk food of, of social life. You binge on it and then you're hungry, but you have too many calories. And you know the, the, the metabolic state is really goofed up. And that's one of the things that we find. So most of the fundamentals of happiness are as old as the hills. And everything I write about the science of happiness, what I'm teaching my students is not get this gizmo, then you're going to finally, you know, find happiness when you plug this thing in. It's basically take, you know, turn that thing off and call your mother. I'm, I'm giving advice like that. It's the craziest thing. You know, I, 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 when you get a PhD in this, you think you're going to find these brand new secrets. And it turns out that you're, you wind up studying Aristotle. <laughs> Uh, another person I work for at the Washington Examiner is Tim Carney, and I think there's yeah. an obvious an obvious question to be asked in this context about alienation and right. uh, heightened alienation in certain parts of the United States, not everywhere. Um, when you're studying this issue, at least domestically, and, and maybe there are you know sort of foreign parallels to it, but how has that played into this equation? So Tim Carney, who's a scholar at the American Enterprise Institute and a, a really, really fine writer and journalist, um, he wrote a great book called Alienated America, where he talked about the fact that the, the <clears throat> fragmentation of American community is lowering our quality of life. And he gives lots of examples of this, and he ties alienation, um, people moving away from their families, not having good connection to you know, the opioid epidemic and everything else in between. And, and I get that completely. America is really a country of balance between individualism and community, uh, much more than, than really any other place in the world. Most places, they focus much more on community and a lot less on individualism. We're always trying to find the balance between that. There's an interesting thing to keep in mind. Everybody sort of thinks that that one of the biggest problems is that young people just all take off and the families aren't together anymore and everybody's moving more than they ever have. And the truth is that the likelihood of moving away from your family has been cut in half over the past three years. People are moving at way, way less than they used to and not as far away as they used to. So it's actually the opposite of what most people think. The problem with alienation is not that we're physically separated from others, but that we are cognitively and emotionally separated from others. You know, it's sort of extraordinary that the way that young people meet each other romantically is through apps and online, as opposed to being set up in real life in blind dates by humans that actually care about us and understand us. And the result of that is that we're looking for basically people who look just like us. When I say us, it was all that stuff has going on, uh, has been going on since I, my last date was 35 years ago. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, but you know, they're, they're looking for huge compatibility and, and, and people who are almost duplicative of them. And what you need is complementarity to actually to complete you, to make you the person that you should be to, to fall in love. You need to find your complement, not your, your doppelganger. 
And, and, and so a lot of the ways that the technologies that we're bringing into it are alienating us. I, I dare say that the problem has really nothing to do with go West young man has really nothing to do with moving for greater opportunity. Um, it has everything to do with the fact that we have all kinds of forces in our society that tell us that men and women should be afraid of each other, that, that relationships are threatening and exploitative, that technologies are you know, the best thing that we could possibly adopt when they're actually the worst thing. And these are the really metastatic forces and in, in alienating us and making us less happy. Something I was just thinking about as you were answering is uh, the some of the research on how women have had uh, different experiences in the workforce over the course of the pandemic than men, and they may be coming out of the pandemic, uh, hmm. you know, with part time work, and and that may be better suited to their desires and, and their life satisfaction. Um, so I, I'm curious, you know, this is a two part question. What was it like studying this issue during the pandemic? Were there things that were sort of changing as you were writing it? And then secondly, how are men and women experiencing some of these challenges differently? Yeah, so I, I had, yeah, I wrote this book during the pandemic. Um, I, I cooked it up a long time before, but I couldn't get to it because I was dealing with my everyday life. You know, I was going to work every day and I was traveling. I travel every week because I do a ton of, I do 150 speeches a year. You know, it's fun and exciting and great, but I don't have time to write my books. And then pandemic happened and I had time to write my book. <laughs> what a blessing, sort of. Um, you know, it was all a mixed blessing for a lot of us. And I talk about this. I do a lot of talks these days. I've been, you know, since April of 2021, I've been back on the road every week and it's great since I finished this book. And, and, I'm answering a lot of questions about that. So the pandemic changed happiness and it changed the nature of a lot of relationships. It was 2020 was kind of the, should be called the full employment act for divorce lawyers or something. It was, you know, a lot of couples wound up getting stress tested and failed the stress test. Others actually came, became closer. And so it had a funny and different effect on a lot of different people <clears throat> when they were no longer able to separate themselves physically at, at an adequate level or the accustomed level, as it, as it were. And it did affect men and women differently. Now, happiness trends between men and women are really quite interesting. And, and for the longest time, you've found that women are happier than men in America. That's been the general trend for decades but it's starting to close. The difference is starting to close. And unfortunately, it's not because men are getting happier. It's because women are getting unhappier. Mm. You find that women's happiness on average is falling to the level of men's. And there's a lot of speculation about that. I mean, I, I, I ask my students at Harvard, you know, why do you think that is? And I get, you know, 10 different explanations for it. But, but nobody says, oh, it's impossible. We're all getting so much happier. No, on the contrary. In general, happiness in America has been declining since the late 1980s just very, very gradually. And most of it is because of the falling happiness of women. That's really interesting. Um, you talk about the success addiction. And I think, again, that's sort of a, a hyper modern um, idea. And that's not to say people have always wanted to be, haven't always wanted to be successful. Of course, of course, they had, but there's something very singular about the, the corporate ideas about success and the, the corporate sort of narrative and success. Um, can you sort of break down that concept of the success addiction and what it looks like? Uh, yeah, I've done a lot of work as a behavioral social scientist on, on, on addiction. And there's a lot of work on the psychopharmacology of addiction, et cetera, et cetera. But one of the most interesting things about addiction is that you find that you can get addicted to a lot of stuff in life. You can get addicted to cigarettes. <clears throat> most of us are addicted to coffee. Uh, you can get addicted to drugs and alcohol. You can get addicted to certain behaviors. Um, people tend to get addicted to things as a they start using substances or engaging excessively behaviors to self-treat. 
So, for example, uh, there's some evidence that people who have a have a, a tendency toward attention deficits, they're really, really attracted to nicotine as adolescents. So, you know, you're you and your friends, you go out and you get a pack of cigarettes and you smoke the cigarettes for the first time. And all your friends are like, gross. <laughs> and you're like, actually, it's really good. And I can't say why, because it draws a ton of dopamine to the prefrontal cortex of the brain, giving you focus where you didn't have it before. And it makes you feel weirdly more human. Well, the same thing is true for people who are real strivers. Um, there's a lot of evidence, particularly among men, there's OECD data that show that men in the United States, that alcohol misuse disorder increases um, uh, uh, directly, positively with socioeconomic status. And so men with higher education, higher status, higher income, they're more likely to drink excessively, not less so, which completely contravenes the, the you know, what we have in our minds about you sort of somebody who's down and out, you know, and, and drowning their sorrows in alcohol. On the contrary, the way that that works is that people who are really stressed out, working super hard, the best way to turn anxiety off like a switch is alcohol. It's a terribly messy drug with all kinds of side effects is the thing. And then people, then the last point to, to address your point directly, uh, and this is, oh, there's a lot of stuff in my new book about this success addiction, is that people who tend to self-objectify, people who are living up to their own expectations or the expectations of their parents, even their long dead parents, they tend to see themselves as excellent achievers. And excellent achievers, they, they want to measure their success. And successes are easy to measure in American life. And this is not even that modern. And you go back 100 years, you find people who are, you know, they're immigrants to the United States. They're achievers. They're strivers. This is the striver nation. And those who tend to self-objectify or who are living up to expectations, they're going to become addicted to the one success after another, one thing I can measure after another, the, the things I write, the money I make, the people I know, the places I go, add them up, add them up, notch, 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 notch. And when you can do that, what happens is every little success, it gives you a little spritz of dopamine into your brain. It gives you that little high and you run from high to high to high to high. I meet people, and this is one of the big barriers to being happy in the second half of life. They don't know how to get off the wheel. The problem is that what you're really good at in the first half of your life is not what you're going to be good at in the second half of your life. And so all the notches that you're putting up of your successes, they come harder and harder. So your satisfaction is declining as certain abilities decline. And, you know, what the big point of my book is you got to get onto a new success curve that's more enduring and less prone to, you know, these there were these primate experiments in the 50s where they would let monkeys self-administer cocaine. And, and they would hit the lever to the exclusion of food and sleep until they died. And, you know, I, I meet people who are my age. I'm in my 50s and I meet people who are complete success addicts. I mean, hit the lever, hit the lever, hit the lever. And they don't even know. They're like, yeah, no, I'm just going to go to the wheels come off. And that's just pure, sure, addictive behavior and the perfect recipe for unhappiness. And we've also transferred a huge chunk of our professional lives onto like dopamine software and our our phones and uh, even email is designed, you know, to be Gmail is designed intentionally to sort of uh, mirror a slot machine effect. Is this exacerbating it? Well, yeah, I mean, this is all compounding. What hap what's happened is that as um, tech has come to understand the structure, has come to understand a lot more neuroscience. Um, I mean, anything you look at, if you go to the app for the New York Times and you read an op-ed that says um, Trump is bad, which is pretty easy to find in the New York Times, and the bottom of the of that op-ed, there will be it'll feed you the next one that says Trump's not bad, he's evil. Yeah. 
and and you hit that what what's that doing that's doing is it's feeding you it's accelerating it's it's uh, ex- exacerbating the the tendency for us to want to hit the lever to get a slightly yeah. you deplete your dopamine you you get kind of full from it after you read the first article and so you want a little bit more and then you want a little bit more and, you know and there's all kinds of studies that shows behavior people who are compulsive gamblers they'll gamble a little and then more and then more and then more because they're trying to get the dopamine while their brain is furiously working to neutralize the excess dopamine that's in there that's you know pornography is so dangerous because it hijacks the brain in that way it's a really really bad thing for people it, it creates super physiological doses of dopamine and and it gets more and more twisted and 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 terrible um, because it plays on our it plays on our our neuro our neuro circuitry and the same thing is true with success you first you want this and then you want that and then you want that and you want it's like I, I talk to a lot of people who like me write books and the worst thing that's ever happened neurologically to people like me who write books is the amazon ranking <laughs> it's the cocaine monkey effect and so <laughs> it's like ah, i'm number 100 on amazon now i'm number 90 uh and if i go you know number 90 is pretty good but if i go back to number 100 well that's misery i need to go to number 80 and we all have it, but success addicts have this in super abundance and they can just ruin their lives with it. Mm. Is this baked into our, our education system in ways that you think are unhealthy? Yeah, it's baked into our culture in ways that are unhealthy. And, and a lot of people will say, ah, it's capitalism, but that's, of course, nonsense. You know, c- capitalism is a machine and the machine runs on on top of whatever culture we decided we decided we wanted to have. Right. You know, I've seen all kinds of crazy addictive behaviors and pathologies and in, in social democratic systems and socialist systems. Um, it really is not. I mean, maybe it's easier to be a success addict under capitalism because there's more success. But look, it's us. We're the ones who are supposed to be in charge. We can't, you know, in, in a victim culture, I suppose that we can try to attribute all the culpability to the, you know, to the software that's running behind it. But look, we're, I mean, we got to take some responsibility here ourselves. Yeah. Does that have anything to do with declining faith? Do you think that as we've sort of secularized as a culture, we have uh, lost, and, and I know that you've written about this, that we've lost purpose. Um, and when you lose purpose, you sort of lose your, your grounding as a culture. What, to what degree is that a factor in this? Yeah, and that's one of the things, the key things I write about in the book for people who are facing the second half of their life and they're feeling a lot of desperation unhappiness, um, panic, even they see some skills declining. They don't know what to do next. They're getting less and less satisfaction. Their, their relationships are weathering. Starting a spiritual journey is critically important. That was much easier 50 years ago because, you know, there's so many people who consider themselves none and no N E not a nun, like a Catholic nun and no N E. And you know, they're it's, you know, when you start from nothing, it's hard if you're 50, but everybody's got to start from somewhere. It's absolutely the case. This is, as we say in my nerdy world, an empirical regularity is to say, you see it all over the place, that one of the most important things for creating happiness, purpose, and meaning, direction in life is faith. Now, that may be my traditional Catholic religious faith, which I recommend to anybody, but there's lots and lots of other ways to do it. And the idea that, no, I'm just going to kind of do my own thing, or I'm going to believe nothing, is a huge mistake. We need the transcendent. We need the idea. We need relief from the boring television show of me, 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 my car, my money, my possessions, my relationships, my job. So boring. It's just death. And you need to back up from that and actually see the bigger picture to see the transcendent. So I have lots of stuff in this book about actually how to do that. So people who who are, are secular but questioning 
there's a, there's a, believe it or not, there's a manual, a step-by-step basis for actually how to start examining different ideas of transcendent ideas that actually, who knows, might just, might just change your life. Hmm. Speaking of death, you write about death in this book, and yeah. I, I'm wondering how you also think the sort of our shifting approach to death, our shifting fears of death, are we more afraid of death uh, the more that we live in a, a comfortable uh, sort of society that where, where death is sort of a sanitized thing that happens in hospitals um, in a very different way than how we used to experience it as human beings? There is some evidence that people are more afraid of death, but most people aren't that afraid. I bet most people listening to us are like, yeah, no, I'm not afraid of death. Only 20% of people are morbidly afraid of, of death. I mean, to coin a phrase, I mean, it's uh, there's a pathological fear of death called thanatophobia of people who just, they think about it all the time and it's just a real terror. And the, the, the basis of that psychologically is that it's sort of a philosophical problem. Um, we all know we're going to die but we actually can't cognitively capture the concept of not existing. Not existing is not something that we can understand, but we do understand that we're going to die. And those things are in conflict. And that conflict per se is intensely uncomfortable. It's a cognitive dissonance that we can't resolve. And so that lack of resolution is what creates a lot of problems for people emotionally. But that's actually not the biggest problem for when I talk to success addicts, when I talk to people who are trying to go into the back half and don't know how to deal with it, or people in the front half like you who want to make the right investment. So when they get into the back half like me, things are going to be better. (laughs) They're really afraid of decline. That's what people are really afraid. So I ask my students, (laughs) my MBA students at Harvard, you know, they're all on average, they're 27 years old. Let's say 10 years from now, you're going to be happier, unhappier. They're like, oh, happier. Because I'm going to have everything figured out. I'm going to have my student loans paid off. I'm going to have a good job. I'm going to have my family situation sorted out, et cetera. I say, okay, how about 10 years later? I say, probably happier. I say, how about 77? Like, I don't want that. I don't want that. I don't want that. So why not? It's like, I don't know. It just doesn't sound good to be old, right? It sounds like stuff is going to hurt and the fun times are going to be passed. And, you know, there's not much time left. What they're really afraid of is decline. And, and this is especially true for people who are super all about the hustle. You know, they'll say, I've heard people say my work is my life. Well, if you say your work is your life, then your death phobia is your work death phobia, is your professional decline. And so I talk an awful lot about that. I, I interview a bunch of people in the book who have this fear and I talk about how to get over it. The way is to confront it. The way, the way to get over any fear is to confront that fear. And that's the American way too, by the way. You know, if you're, it's like, it's, you can, unfortunately, too many people fear and unhappiness that somebody else's fault and must be treated in some exotic way. That's true when we have troubles with mood disturbances or uh, um, mental illness. But for most of us under ordinary circumstances, fear is part of life. Unhappiness is part of life. And you got to lean into it. You got to sit with it and you got to lean into it. That's what actually provides purpose and meaning. One of the reasons that happiness is falling is because people are trying to avoid unhappiness. And when they avoid unhappiness, they avoid meaning. When they avoid fear, they avoid purpose. And in so doing, they decrement their own happiness. Life has less flavor to it, to a lot of young people, especially people in their 20s and and early 30s today. That's That's a malady of the millennials is, you know, like the hippies, people who are, you know, sort of between my parents and my generation would like, if it feels good, do it. And now the mantra and the millennials is kind of, if it feels bad, treat it. Mm. And that's not necessarily very good advice again for mental illness and mood disturbances. Absolutely. 
But for, for most of life, which has ups and downs, feel it, sit with it. This is part of you. You got to be, to be a life entrepreneur means you got to be fully alive. And to be fully alive means you got to be sad and you got to be angry and you have to be afraid and you have to experience those emotions. So I've been thinking recently about some of the, the calls for a four-day work week, and we've seen more and more writing on the idea of a four-day work week, which I believe has been tried in particular Scandinavian countries. And, you know, of course, the media says it's been a success, and I don't know whether or not that's true, but it does strike me as something really interesting because it used to be that you could go on vacation and you didn't have a cell phone. So the only way the office could reach you is by, like, calling the hotel and getting in touch with you. Right. And the same thing would happen after you went home at night. Um, you know, that's the, you know, you, you had all your papers on your desk even before computers and you left them there and then you came back and there was more sort of compartmentalization and it seems to me that a four four day work week doesn't solve this at all in fact it just brings more work into those those uh three days off you know it'll just rearrange it um but do you see that those sort of proposals for different ways to rearrange our work week and our work lives as something that springs from uh, the exhaustion that this culture of success addiction creates I think it is. I think a lot of people are reacting to it and trying to find creative ways to deal with it. Now, most people, to be sure, they don't take their work home with them. I mean, you do. I do. I mean, I'm attached to my work all the time, and I've never worked less than a 60-hour work week in my entire career um, because I, I love my work. I don't have hobbies. This is a weird thing for me about, you know, because now I'm acting like an old guy. Um, <laughs> millennials, they have hobbies. It's like, what do you say? Oh, I play saxophone in a band. And it's like, well, well. <laughs> I don't get it. It's like, I like to make artisanal cheese. It's the weirdest thing to me. It's a, it's all work is my hobby. I love my work. I mean, I, my family, my religious life, I go to mass every day. I work out every day. I work. I mean, it's just the best thing ever, but look, different strokes is what it comes down to. Most people actually don't take their work home with them. Um, and, and for those people, if they want to find a way to work less, that's great. The problem is of course, the, you know, the, the, the dead hand of bureaucracy saying nobody must work more than four days a week. Mm-hmm. That's where it really becomes problematic. I want choice. I want people to make free choices so that they can live better, happier lives and lift other people up. I don't want somebody telling me to work a four day work week. I want to work what I want to work. And I want to learn to love others and myself sufficiently to make the right choices and create the right boundaries in my own life. But when I get to the point where like, I don't trust myself to not work. So I want the government to make it illegal for me to work on Fridays. That's for me, that is just, and it's not just because I'm a free market guy. It's because I'm an American and I think that I'm enough of an adult that I can make that particular decision. And I frankly don't think that I have to protect everybody from themselves Either if some people want to get to the point where they're they belong to a, a union or some sort of a syndicate or they just make it the decision for themselves if they can if they can afford to to work fewer hours and our common our economy can accommodate that more power to them I say that's absolutely great but leave me alone. <laughs> well, I, I want to keep pulling at that thread because uh, the other day I was writing about TikTok and the way that ByteDance... I'm sorry. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> and so the, the Chinese 
uh, app that is just like TikTok owned by the same company, Douyin. Um, it's, it regulates users. And, you know, part of that is to keep the government happy that if you've been on the app for too long, you are taking a mandatory five second pause. Uh, they will, they will create that pause for you. You can't X out of it. You have to take right. this five second pause. And I was thinking, you know, today on the right, I could see some people saying that the government should tell TikTok they have to do the same thing here. But what's so interesting about that is the right has always been about saying, I trust the individual to right. make these decisions and not the government. And so I guess I'm, I'm wondering what you think about that sort of debate on the right, which I think AEI has has hosted in really interesting ways. Um, and, and just looking at the sort of back and forth between the families the people there who are doing family studies and research and the people there who are more focused on the economy um, how have you seen some of this translate into internecine uh, conversation on the right about the interplay between free markets and regulation in this this new era so that tiktok example is is, is an exotic example of but it's an interesting one because basically you're talking about a product that's unknowingly dangerous. Right. So, you know, there's all kinds of things that, that most people believe in that you shouldn't sell, you know, gin to kids. <laughs> right. And, and that's basically what it is. It's some sort of a regulation on something that tends to be used irresponsibly and hijack the brain. We usually don't have, we don't favor those types of regulations for legal products consumed by consenting adults. And, and that's, you know, look, I, I know that there's all kinds of stuff. I mean, gambling in Vegas captures the brains of consenting adults and alcohol can turn into abuse among consenting adults. And yet we have to make a decision, a cost benefit decision about rights and responsibilities in our society. And, and we can't say anytime there is an external cost. I mean, I'm an economist. But I know that just because it's an external cost doesn't mean it must be much must be redressed by the government. That 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 that's a cost of freedom and and quite frankly, that's a cost of dignity. And that's that's not something that we've been willing to say. That anytime there's a cost, anytime there's something that's subconscious, anytime that there's a public health um, um, uh, problem, it must be redressed by the government, and it must be redressed in a way that actually internalizes that external cost. I mean, it's not the way we think. I, not, frankly, it's not the way I want us to think. I want more freedom, even though I understand it's not costless under the circumstances. Now, to your point about the conflict on the right between big government, little government, this is a really, really interesting time, I have to say. I mean, I've, I haven't seen so much comfort with big government and, and so much skepticism about market forces on the right in my whole adult lifetime, because Look, I became an adult in the 80s. <clears throat> Guess what was going on in the 80s? St. Ronald was going on in the 80s if you're if you're a conservative. And you know, it took a long time for me to <clears throat> come to my own views. But I, you know, I learned kind of the way I see the world on the basis of of studying, not at a university. I mean, I, I went to correspondence school for my for my college education. And I, and I graduated when I was 30. So I, it was a stack of textbooks on my own and nobody was telling me really what to think. And it really rocked my world. I, you know, I went from pretty conventional beliefs to much, much more liberty focused beliefs on the, on, on the basis of, of deep consideration of these ideas unencumbered from the interpretation that you largely get in the classroom. And I still believe these things. I mean, I look, I understand the costs. I'm a, I'm a social scientist. I, I mean, I, I read the literature. I write a column every week in the Atlantic about the neuroscience and social science of, of happiness. I'm reading 20 of these long haired journal articles a week. I know what's going on with uh, dopaminergic pathways based on certain behaviors. I get it. But I also understand that there's a, it's, it's nothing is free. And I love being an American. 
because I love not getting pushed around like you are in, in a lot of other countries. That's that's what I want. That's increasingly, by the way, that's why people are living in some states versus others, because they don't want to be pushed around. And and in some states, you get pushed around more than you do in others. And by the way, some people are moving to the states where they get pushed around more because they want that. Phenomenal. Great. More power to them, as far as I'm concerned. But it's not an open and shut case. And I think all of us as responsible adults going through our lives have to make the decision. What do I consider important? Where do I want to how do I want to build my life? How much control do I want to have? How much say do I want to have? It requires a lot of learning, a lot of cognizance over the, 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 the forces that are in play. You got to be informed. Um, but once you are, then make your own decisions. People, including Tim, have written about sort of the the political consequences of alienation or despair. Sally Sattel, also from AEI, has has written about that and spoken about that. And we've sort of seen the the policy solutions that people have proposed to address problems like alienation and despair. Are there policy solutions that could address what you're talking about? Or is it sort of a dichotomy where actually, as this book is really focused on, this is about individuals making these recognitions in their own life and adapting appropriately? Yeah, so people often ask me, um, as a happiness specialist, what can the government do to make people happier? And the answer is nothing. Now, I don't mean the government should do nothing. What I'm saying is basically based on the on the, the 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 reality that happiness and unhappiness are not opposites. They're actually processed largely in different hemispheres of the brain. And what the government can do is lower the sources of unhappiness. That's what the government is really, really, really good at. And so uh, early childhood or, or primary education is a great way to lower the sources of unhappiness through ignorance and, you know, as, as they say in baseball, unforced errors in life by just, you know, basic knowledge of the way things work, for example, or allowing, making it possible for people to move about as in through public infrastructure that can lower the sources of unhappiness in people's lives. But once a politician or a policymaker says, elect me, I want to make you happy. You should be very, very afraid. And this is not my, you know, libertarian American idea or something. On the contrary, um, I asked the Danish Speaker of the House, who's a, a hardened socialist, <laughs> Hans Litkethoff. He's actually at the United Nations now. And I said, you know, I was making a documentary film. And I said, um, you, you guys are supposed to be so happy, you Danes, right? What is the government doing to make people happy? And he says, nothing. The government can't make people happy. The government can only lower the sources of unhappiness. Look, if a Danish socialist says that, we got to start paying attention to that. And that's how basic public goods come along and, and by, by lowering this, the barriers to our, our, our happiness. And, and we can have a big argument about what those services should be. I mean, it's really legitimate that some people say more, you know, maybe somebody can legitimately make the argument we should have single-payer health care. And somebody else says it's not worth the cost because it's too inefficient. You're going to wind up like Canada. But at least let's have the argument on the basis of, of the, the real terms of human benefit. And what it's all about is basically making it, uh, getting rid of some of these barriers in life, which are the unhappiness barriers in life so that we can build our own lives as we see fit. Are there practical tips that you've distilled for people interested in, in making these improvements that just sort of right off the bat, you can you can rattle off and say, do X, Y, and Z, or is it really, a, you have to draw from someplace deeper um, and personalize it to yourself? 
oh no, my whole class is about how to do this. And uh, my whole class for my, and, and again, it comes from deep wisdom. It comes from, you know, the ancients and, and, and theological traditions and the ancient Greeks, et cetera, et cetera. But it's basically what we know as social scientists, there's a ton of stuff that we can do. There's a ton of stuff. So this book that we're talking about here, which is about what we can do now to be happy later and what, you know, people, so it's you at your age in your twenties, there's definite investments that you can make that are dramatically going to increase your likelihood when you're my age and older of being a happy person. That's super important. Number one is recognizing that you basically get two power curves in your professional life. You have raw brains, what's called fluid intelligence early on that makes you really successful at thinking through stuff, innovating, solving problems, and it tends to decline in your 40s and your 50s. But you get a second curve, which is called your crystallized intelligence curve, which is your wisdom, your ability to teach ideas to others is incredibly good in your 50s, especially your 60s and 70s. And so you need to go from innovator to instructor, whatever that means in your particular career. That's a definite idea. This is, again, this is just based on the book. Uh, there are ideas that are based on, on empirical truths that are based on all of the best science for everybody at every age. So for example, don't pay attention to what your brain wants you to pay attention to, which is money, power, pleasure, and fame. That's what your brain says is going to make you successful and satisfied. It's wrong. It's a lie. Your dreams are liars. You need to be paying attention to the four right things, which is your faith and your family and your friendship and work that serves other people. That's it. You need every day to put a deposit in these four accounts, faith, family, friends, and work, where work you earn your success honestly, where your accomplishments are rewarded, you're creating value, and you're serving other people who need you. Those are the big four. Now, you got to decide what faith means. you got to figure out who your family is and build your family. You have to actually have friends, real friends, not just deal friends, which is an incredibly important distinction, especially for strivers. they got this like big Rolodex of connections, but nobody that they could call at 2 a.m. and cry. Real friends. And, you, and you know, if you're, if, if you're real friends you haven't talked to in six months, they're not real friends. I mean, you get the idea. And, and all of these things are going in reverse right now. Right now that we have more people say they have no religious affiliation. One in six Americans is not talking to a family member because of politics, which is completely idiotic. Mm -hmm. To sacrifice love and happiness for politics is so stupid. Um, we find that that loneliness, according to our, we have a great Surgeon General for President Biden named Vivek Murthy, and he he says that the biggest public health crisis in America today is loneliness, and that's because we have fewer and fewer people who know us well, and we have fewer and fewer intimates that we could call at night, and the last is 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 success um, understood really in terms of earning what you have and serving others. And, you know, that doesn't mean you make a lot of money. That doesn't mean that you have a lot of power. It doesn't even mean you have a specific job. You can be, you know, running the Federalist Radio Hour, teaching at Harvard or driving a bus. If you earn your success and you serve other people, you get those things. So that's a, these are basic matters of happiness hygiene. There's 10 of them, 10 basic laws on what you can do to get happier as you get older in this book. And then everything else I write in the Atlantic every Thursday morning, every single time is like three of these. Mm -hmm. So it's just, there's tons of this. See, if you need practical tips to be happy, you should absolutely pick up a copy of From Strength to Strength. It is out on February 15th. Arthur, it has been a privilege. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Emily. It's great to talk to you. It's, uh, you know, at some point we'll all be back in person. But in the meantime, these technologies are, are really, really great. I'm glad everybody's listening to Federalist Radio Hour. It's a terrific service. 
Thank you so much, Arthur. The book, again, is From Strength to Strength, Finding Success, Happiness, and Deep Purpose in the Second Half of Life. I'm Emily Jashinsky, Culture Editor here at The Federalist. We will be back soon with more. Until then, be lovers of freedom and anxious for the fray. Darling, you got me right where you